The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. invite you now to turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 11. We continue on in a mini-series from this chapter, from Isaiah's prophecy. When talking with people of my grandparents' generation about the way things used to be, it's not uncommon to hear stories about how people at one time oftentimes didn't lock their doors at night. People did not lock their cars or take many of the safety precautions that are commonplace in our own day and age. And as I talk with people, there is a kind of sad nostalgia in their voice as they reflect upon more peaceful and less threatening times. We come to a passage that's very reflective, and not with nostalgia and not just a memory of what perhaps conditions were like before the fall of man, but offering to us a stunning vision of the manner in which God will redeem the earth and his people and to restore what the Bible calls shalom. In Hebrew, the idea of shalom is what we might call peace, but not just a personal peace, a a kind of renewal and reordering of all things according to God's purpose And design. Well, tonight, as we celebrate the advent of the King of Glory, let us consider his word and the coming of his kingdom of peace. Please follow as I read Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 6. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the holy and inspired word. Let us pray. Father, as we have sung your praises, we now ask that you might visit us, illumine our minds and our hearts as we behold this glorious vision. Help us to see Jesus and him only. We pray in his precious name. Amen. A few years ago, we purchased the Discovery Channel Planet Earth video series, and our family thoroughly enjoys watching the fascinating habits of wildlife and their natural surroundings. One familiar pattern is how the predator always seems to go after the young, weaker, and vulnerable animal. 
The cheetah does not chase after the big and strong gazelle across the African Serengeti, but rather hunts down the small one that is veered from the pack. Likewise, the wolf hunting down fleet-footed caribou along the migrating across the Canadian plains goes after the newborn, sometimes only a few days old as he scatters the herd. Amazingly, this young mammal can outrun a full-grown wolf, but is more likely to make a mistake, slip, and become an easy meal to a hungry predator. The polar bear, seeking to feast on walrus, tries to go around the adults with their thick, blubbery hides and their long, sharp tusks to feast on the tender youth who is being pushed and hidden within the walls of its elders for protection. Such is nature, red in tooth and claw. James, in chapter 3, marvels that all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, creatures of the sea, have been tamed by man. And yet, the wildness of the kingdom rears its ugly head every so often. Just back in February, a sea world trainer of killer whales was drowned and shaken to death, bringing an end to the fans' most popular and uh, most frequently visited exhibit at these water parks. It seems that man's dominion over the animals is still marred by the curse of sin. Well, despite these images of violence, Isaiah offers us a vision of an innocence that was once forgotten will once again become creation regained. Now, questions are posed upon our text here in chapter 11. Wondering whether this offers us a picture of what it was like in Eden. Scholars debate over what was the nature between predator and prey before the fall of humankind. Some would argue that this futuristic vision is echoing back to pre-fall conditions where stronger animals pose no threat to the weaker ones. So there would have been a vegetarian world ideal with no bloodshed, and so our hope would be to one day return to similar conditions. Others would challenge these assumptions and argue that the predator-prey relationship was a part of God's original design. This would presuppose an old earth and not take a literal 24-hour day view of the days in Genesis 1. And this would rest upon an approach that assumes that before the creation and fall of man, that there were variations of many animal species that were created and fell extinct over many millennia. And this idea challenges the notion that somehow animal death and carnivorous behavior is a result of sin. This interpretation would insist that the radical change that took place at the fall was primarily man's alienation from God with himself, with others, and the rest of creation. So we would say that this fallen world, the fallenness of this world did not necessarily add predatory behavior, but perhaps brought in a new 
cruel and desperate dimension to it. But what is now broken is man's inability to properly care for the earth. The world is under curse, and man in vain seeks to restore a utopian dream. Well, this being said, I would argue that these short, this short passage from Isaiah 11 is not so much pointing us back to Eden, nor portraying a vision of lions and lambs literally eating and playing together. Rather, the prophet is offering strong images from the natural order, from the animal kingdom, to cast a vision of a new world where hostilities, fears, and threats will cease forever. Our creator and redeemer will create a new heavens and a new earth, restoring shalom and peaceful conditions according to God's design. Some of this passage is repeated later in Isaiah 65, which is very clearly speaking of a new heavens and a new earth. And so it is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is ushering in a kingdom of peace. This is a kingdom of power, protection, and promise. Well, the power of this kingdom of peace is demonstrated, first of all, by the radical change in relationships. Sworn enemies are reconciled. Hostilities between warring parties will cease. This is illustrated in verse 6 by three sets of comparisons between the, uh, the wolf, the leopard, and the lion versus the lamb and the goat and the calf or the yearling. The verbs used to describe their relationship to live to lie down, to be together, all express a unity and a, and a harmony unheard of in this fallen world. Now, the context of Isaiah 11 is in context of God addressing the fact that Israel as a nation are a people estranged from one another. If you're familiar with the history, how Israel, after only three generations of kings, was divided between north and south, and similar prophecies envision a united Israel and Judah who would no longer suffer threat from their enemies. We as a nation know what it's like to be divided. In our own history, we have civil war between north and south. We live in a very politically divided landscape. As the people of God, we understand that the church is highly segregated along lines of doctrine and style and other less important matters. But Jesus tells us, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And the Prince of Peace is determined to reconcile his people to himself and to one another. Well, not only is this kingdom of power one of change, it also is one that brings forth radical transformations in nature. In verse 7, we see the cow feeding with the bear. Now, a bear is an omnivore, and it doesn't need to eat just meat to survive. But then it goes on to say that the lion will eat straw like an ox. That's like getting one of my fussy eaters at home to eat broccoli. 
This is a radical transformation of beastly nature being tamed to thrive on whole new sustenance. But Isaiah, we believe, is not talking about changes in the animal kingdom. As much as he is pointing us to the fact that God will take our beastly natures, the beastliness of fallen humanity, and reform us into the likeness of God himself. He will remake us more human, more human than we've ever been. And this radical transformation is already taking place through the preaching of the gospel and will be made complete at the dawn of the new heavens and the new earth. In 1995, Burl Cain took over the role of warden at the Louisiana State Prison at Angola, one of the most notorious and bloodiest prisons in our nation. 5,000 inmates face certain death, either by execution or a life sentence without parole. When Cain arrived at this infamous prison, it was beholden and overrun with murder, rape, and gang violence. Witnessing the despair and the cruelty, Cain was resolved to bring Christ to a very hurting world. He and his team were tireless in creating a new prison where men who who faced a life sentence could choose to make something of their lives and make a home for themselves even within these prison walls. He was determined to establish an environment that was safe for inmate and employee, to add value and moral responsibility to the lives of these men. He invited New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary to offer a four-year college extension program for men who desired to complete a degree. Every weekday, a hundred men plus crowd into classrooms to study the Bible to earn credit towards their degree. A hundred, over a hundred faith-based certificates were earned towards a high school diploma in 2006. Inmate seminary graduate students who desire and felt called to go into the ministry go out two by two to all the other prisons across the state of Louisiana as inmate missionaries. They've chosen to serve God and share the gospel with people like no one else can. In one year, they baptized over 150 converts, made over 15,000 evangelistic contacts every month. Burl Cain also offered public speaking courses so these men could improve their communication skills. They have a radio station, JSLP 91.7 FM, affectionately referred to as Incarceration Station, staffed by inmates. It evangelizes 24 hours a day with music and gospel-centered sermons. Angola is still a prison, but living conditions have improved tremendously, with murder and violence way down, rapes, drug abuse, and assault on prison guards, down to minimal levels. 
It's not uncommon to find prayer services on the yards, the grounds, in the dormitories, at the work sites. Praise and worship services in the chapels are spirit-filled, led by inmate musicians and choirs. Only the power of the gospel can restore peace and order to a place that once resembled wild kingdom. The beastly nature of mankind can be tamed and made humane in the likeness of our Savior. And that power is not just available to inmates on death row, to those who face a life sentence in prison. It's available to all of us who face certain death, to the one who has conquered sin and death, through our Prince of Peace who has resolved to make us reconcilers, peacemakers in our homes, in our workplaces, wherever God would call us to preach the message of peace. Caesar Augustus, upon establishing control over the throne in Rome, established an era of peace that has become to be known as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. But as we know full well from history, that peace did not last because it did not have the power for true change and transformation. That power rests alone in the gospel, coming from the hand of the true king of kings. You and I are his ambassadors. We are emissaries. We are called to be salt and light, to bear witness and prepare a hostile world for the arrival of this kingdom of peace that will have no end. We are receiving not only a kingdom of power, but the king of glory is bringing a kingdom of protection. In his kingdom, there will be nothing to fear. The Bible tells us that after the fall, that God put the fear of man in the animals, frustrating humankind's dominion over the natural world. In verse 6, we see this fear resolved. As even a little child is able to lead animals, great and small. This repeats in verse 8, where the infant plays without harm near the cobra's lair. The toddler, with no threat to him, places his hand upon the viper's nest. Now, these are situations in which no right-minded parent would ever allow his child to get into. Parents are all too aware of dangers threatening their children everywhere. Parents wrestle with anxiety and fear of their children getting lost, kidnapped, hit by a car, catching some awful disease. A kingdom is coming where there will be nothing to fear because there will be nothing to harm us. In the new heavens and the new earth, all threats will be removed. Our great architect ensures that his people will have all the protections that they need. Isaiah 65 promises that never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth. He who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people, my chosen ones 
will long enjoy the works of their hands. They will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord. Imagine a young family moving into a fixer-upper house that is an overgrown backyard that backs up into a wooded area. The young parents learned that the walls of this house were lined with and covered with lead paint. They would go to work, being diligent to strip the walls and refinish it to make it safer environment for their children. Then the inspector reveals that the basement has dangerously high levels of radon. Well, parents would promptly go out and purchase equipment, install it to properly pump and remove the dangerous gases before they turn that basement into a playroom for their little ones. Then the parents unfortunately realize that the wooded area behind them is tick-infested. So they cut back the brush, they put up a fence, they perhaps fumigate or spray the area in an effort to remove these dangerous pests. Well, like a loving parent. Our Heavenly Father is preparing a place for us that is free from all harm. Isaiah 25 says that he will swallow up death forever and wipe every tear from our eyes. Revelation 21 promises that the gates of the city of God will never be shut. There will be no night there. Nothing impure will ever enter it. In it will dwell the glory of the nations, the names of everyone who is written in the Lamb's book of life. This glorious truth is ours through the King of glory's promise. Verse 9 promises us both safety and salvation. Isaiah here in verse 9 offers us a picture of our eternal dwelling place upon a high mountain, so high and protected that no enemy can ever threaten. But what is so striking about this vision is not so much the safety that it promises, but when we understand the extent that God went to secure it for us during the season we celebrate the first coming of Christ. He did not take the safe route. He left the comforts and protections of his father's court to grow up in a hostile land, threatened from the very moment of his arrival. Fierce predators pursued him. Herod's threat caused his family to flee to Egypt for their lives. As his public ministry began, Jesus immediately faced hostile opposition. False teachers sought repeatedly to trap him so they might arrest him, bringing him to the Roman authorities for the things that he said. They were diabolically determined to put him to death. But Jesus only sought safety and refuge when it was necessary for his disciples to take time out to learn the things that he was teaching them. But when the time came near, nothing could stand in our Lord's way from fulfilling his father's mission. He set his face like flint to march towards Jerusalem, a road littered with pitfalls from the enemy. This was not a path of safety, but one that led to ultimate violence. For evil to be dealt with once and for all, 
to provide security and salvation for his people. That salvation is illustrated in verse 9. With the earth being filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. An image repeated in Habakkuk chapter 2, 14. These verses remind us that salvation is personal. It is relational. It's not just a matter of removing the threats of God's coming wrath on the day that he will judge the wicked. Nor is it just a promise of, of a peaceful existence with no fear of harm. No, this salvation is one of great joy. Where we are reconciled with our maker, enjoying intimacy intended by our creator, redeemer. This was the will of our God, that his son should suffer, that you and I be spared. He is the one who hurled all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Their death and sin are drowned and buried forever. And as Jeremiah reminds us in the new covenant, that just as the waters cover the sea, so will all God's people know the Lord from the least of them to the greatest. This peacemaker has come to reconcile the warring parties and through his bloodshed on the cross to establish peace forever. It was not uncommon in the 1960s for various groups and politicians to ratchet up their rhetoric and establish policy with a vision of creating a new world order of peace. One part of that agenda ever since has been to try to create a peaceful coexistence between Israel and her hostile neighbors. I, for one, am in favor of negotiations to avoid war, to prevent harmful conflicts, but I have no illusions about the political process or the work of ambassadors to establish anything other than temporary and less than satisfactory results. As we enter into potential nuclear arms races once again, the future seems uncertain from a human point of view. I would not have a lot of confidence in the power of the United Nations to end such hostilities. But I have great confidence in the power and the promise of the gospel to establish lasting peace and true reconciliation. The war between nations and the war within our own human hearts can only be healed by Jesus, our Prince of Peace. In the church of my upbringing, One fall, I served as a senior high mentor to a junior high communicants class. And on one occasion, the students were given an opportunity to ask questions about theology and faith. And one of the students asked whether we thought there would be animals in heaven. And I, at the time, was a young Christian just grappling with my newfound faith. And I wanted to give an answer that I thought was as orthodox as I could make it. So... I told the class that, no, I did not believe there would be animals in heaven because animals do not have souls. They can neither be condemned nor redeemed for eternity. Now, that may very well be still a good orthodox answer to that question. 
But since then, I have grown more open to the possibility that not just animals, but perhaps non-human or non-angelic creatures might be found in the new heavens, in the new earth. And this is not because, and I've not made room for this because my theology has changed. I still maintain that animals do not receive personal salvation. I doubt that you will find your favorite pet, fluffy or spot in glory. But it just might be the case that our redemptive and creative God, by his own freedom and will, may choose to fill the eternal state with wonders unseen and unimagined by the finite minds of men. But let's make something very clear here. The best thing about heaven will not be the presence of animals, if they are in fact to be found there. Nor will the best thing about heaven be our loved ones who have gone on ahead of us, as glorious as those reunions will be. The best thing about heaven is Jesus. You and I will behold his glory. We will see him face to face. We will join with angelic horses singing praise to the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. Yes, it will be ours to enjoy an eternal state free from all cares, fears, the wares and tears of this fallen world. His is a kingdom of peace, power, protection. We have his promise. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you for a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of righteousness with no fear of harm, where all things will be reconciled through Jesus Christ, our only Savior, Redeemer, and Lord. We praise him and glorify him. Amen.